At least six people are dead in Alabama because of severe storms that brought more than two dozen tornadoes to the south. It's Friday, January 13th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, how a new law could help officials prepare for extreme weather. Also this hour, a special counsel will probe President Biden's potential mishandling of classified documents. This appointment underscores for the public the department's commitment to both independence and accountability. And a nonprofit takes over the vacant Oberon Theater in Cambridge with big plans for a multi-arts space. Sure, it could be a nightclub one night, but it could also be a dance recital, or it could be a straight play, or it could be a set of performing artists. In sports, the Bruins lose at home. Rain and wind with highs in the mid-50s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A mammoth storm crashed through the south yesterday, spawning more than 30 tornadoes. Seven people have been killed. NPR's Dave Mistich says there are reports of substantial damage. The storm passed through Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and Tennessee. Dozens of homes were destroyed in central Alabama after a tornado struck northeast of Selma. In Georgia, Chief of Staff of Emergency Management and Homeland Security Mike Smith urged residents to stay home while crews get to work. If you have to get out and travel, we would prefer you stay home, but there are going to be power lines crossing roadways, so be very careful of that. In Butts County, Georgia, one person was killed when a tree fell on their vehicle. In the same county, a train appeared to have been knocked off its tracks by heavy winds. Dave Mistich, NPR News. Meanwhile, the National Weather Service says today's forecast is grim for California. It is still raining in parts of northern California, hit by flooding and mudslides from weeks of storms. Forecasters say a fresh round of moisture will strike the state tomorrow. Two companies owned by former President Donald Trump will be sentenced today in New York City. The Trump Organization was convicted last month of tax fraud. NPR's Ilya Meritz reports Trump himself was not charged. The trial featured testimony from former Trump executives and accountants who worked with him closely, and jumbo projections of checks with Donald Trump's distinctive signature. In the end, the jury agreed with prosecutors that these two Trump businesses evaded state, local, and federal taxes through a variety of illegal maneuvers. The judge in the case could fine the businesses as much as about $1.6 million. Trump's lawyers have already said they will appeal the verdict. Trump himself has not been charged and said his company did nothing wrong. Ilya Meritz, NPR News, New York. A special counsel has been named to investigate some classified documents that were discovered last November in President Biden's home and another location. Republican lawmakers say Biden should have disclosed the information last year before the midterm elections. Russia's defense ministry says its forces have captured the eastern Ukrainian town of Solodar. There have been bloody battles in the town. Russia wants to seize it to help cut off Ukrainian forces. Ukraine denies this report. The news comes as Western countries, including the U.S., are promising to ship armored personnel vehicles to Ukraine. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley says previously, Ukrainian allies had not been willing to send this equipment. The war has changed. The Ukrainians have shown they can not only defend their country, but many think they can win this war against an army that before the conflict was thought to be the world's second most powerful. And this has changed the calculation. So while the West for a long time was concerned with escalating the conflict, antagonizing Russia, it's become worried about the war dragging on for years with the two sides in a seeming stalemate and no peace negotiations in sight. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley prepared that report. You're listening to NPR News. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. On Beacon Hill today, a special House committee is holding hearings. Those will determine the outcome of two legislative races that have yet to be resolved two months after the election. More now from WBUR's Steve Brown. Democrat Margaret Scarsdale beat Republican Andrew Shepard by seven votes for an open seat in central Massachusetts. On the North Shore, incumbent Republican Lenny Mira lost to Democratic challenger Kristen Kasner by a single vote. While the governor's council has certified those results, both Shepard and Mira have challenged the results in court, with both cases still pending. A 20-year-old state Supreme Court ruling says it's ultimately up to the House to resolve the disputes, and that's the reason for today's hearings. For now, the House is letting Mira hold on to a seat until they resolve the dispute over voting. The other seat remains vacant. Regardless of the outcome, Democrats will continue to hold a commanding majority in the chamber. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Most people involved in Massachusetts' domestic work industry are largely unaware of a key state labor law. That's according to a new report from Boston College Law School. It finds more than three-quarters of domestic workers do not know much about the protections afforded them under the 2014 Domestic Workers' Bill of Rights. An even greater percentage of people who employ those workers are unaware of their responsibility to honor those protections. Regulators say the digital sports platform company Fanatics may be eligible to offer online sports betting in Massachusetts. The State Gaming Commission came to that decision yesterday after several days of hearings. Fanatics will have to provide a formal plan for responsible gaming before it officially receives a license. Energy company Eversource is facing steep fines because of a manhole explosion on Beacon Hill last year that killed a worker. The company could be fined over $330,000. An OSHA investigation found multiple workplace safety violations in the incident. OSHA says Eversource could have prevented the fatality with proper training. The company says it disagrees with the findings. The recent warmer temperatures and rain are impacting the local ski season. Ski Bradford in Haverhill says less than 60 percent of its trails are open. That's down at least 20 percent from a typical year. The facility has only been able to make snow seven or eight nights this season, and it had to delay its opening date until December 28th. Ski Bradford Ski Patrol Director Dennis Galvin says this is an issue at ski areas across southern New England. We really don't even care at this point if we have blizzards per se. As long as it's uh, maybe below 20 degrees, we can make some really good snow and get the whole area covered. So we'll settle at this point for a nice long cold spell. Gavin says temperatures must be under 28 degrees by 9 p.m. in order to make snow. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. The Bruins were handed their first regulation loss at home last night by the Seattle Kraken. They lost 3-0. to zero. The team skate at the Garden again tomorrow with the Toronto Maple Leafs. The Celtics won on the road last night in Brooklyn. The team defeated the Nets 109-98. They're on the road again tomorrow in Charlotte.
The warmer weather today will bring rain and wind with it. Expect wind gusts of up to 40 miles an hour. Temperatures may rise as high as 56 degrees. Tonight, mostly cloudy as temperatures in the low 30s. Tomorrow, cloudy with a slight chance of snow showers and temperatures may reach the upper 30s. Sunday, another chance of snow in the morning, then cloudy. Temperatures will rise to near 40 degrees. It's 59 degrees in Boston at 708. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Dwayne Brown in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. For the second time in two months, Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed a special counsel to investigate a politically sensitive subject. This time, the special counsel is former prosecutor Robert Hur. His job is to find out how classified documents came to be located at President Joe Biden's home in Delaware and at an office tied to him in Washington. NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson has been following the story, and she joins us now. Good morning, Carrie. Good morning. So what do we know about the mandate of this new prosecutor? The DOJ wants him to investigate the possible unauthorized removal and retention of classified documents or other records found at two sites connected to President Biden. That's his home in Delaware and an office he used at a think tank in Washington, D.C., after he served as vice president. Now, of course, classified materials are supposed to be stored in special places, not out in the open or even in a locked room or a closet. The White House says Biden isn't sure what's in these papers that his lawyers found, and he didn't know the papers were there. A White House lawyer says these documents were misplaced, that this was a mistake, not intentional. But that's going to be for the Justice Department to decide. The special prosecutor is going to get to work in the coming days. And Leila, he's already pretty familiar with how the DOJ operates. Robert Hur was a top official there in the Trump years. He also served as the U.S. attorney in Maryland in that era. Now, Attorney General Merrick Garland came into office pledging to restore public confidence in the Justice Department. Is that why he made this appointment? Merrick Garland said these regulations at the Justice Department called for him to appoint an outsider here because these are extraordinary circumstances. Here's more of what the Attorney General had said to explain his decision. This appointment underscores for the public the department's commitment to both independence and accountability in particularly sensitive matters and to making decisions indisputably guided only by the facts and the law. And Garland had praise for lawyers and agents who've already been working on this matter. He says he's going to make sure the new prosecutor has all the resources he needs to do this job. Now, this week, Republicans in Congress opened a separate investigation into President Biden and his family. How are they reacting to this appointment? I mean, he is, as you said, a top official that was there in the Trump years. Yeah, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says there's still a role for Congress to play in investigating these Biden documents. And the new chairman of the House Oversight Panel, James Comer of Kentucky, agrees. But Comer says he's really not a fan of special counsels. Here's what he said. When that special counsel is appointed, it limits our ability to do some of the uh, oversight investigations that uh, we want to do with respect to this. I think the House Oversight Committee can be a lot more effective and a lot quicker in getting to the truth of what really went on with those classified documents than a special counsel. 
Well, we have a special counsel now, and Comer says he's going to push for answers still about why the Biden administration kept this all secret from the public for months and who had access to Biden's office and his home. On the Senate side, the Intelligence Committee says they want a briefing, too, not just about these Biden papers, but also about what the FBI found in its search of former President Donald Trump's home in Florida, Mar-a-Lago. That Trump investigation is much more advanced, of course. Special counsel Jack Smith is leading that probe. He's been on the job since last November. We know some former Trump White House aides have answered questions, but there's been no public action there in that case just yet. NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson. Thanks, Carrie. Happy to be here. November 2nd. That's when President Biden's lawyers say they discovered some old classified documents where they shouldn't be, but the White House didn't publicly disclose it until it blew up as a big news story. And even then, They weren't fully forthcoming about the extent of the problem. Now it is a full-blown political headache for Biden. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith has more on the story. The story broke on Monday. The next day, Biden started explaining. They found some documents in a box in a locked cabinet, or at least a closet. And as soon as they did, they realized there were several classified documents in that box. And they did what they should have done. It was days before the midterm elections, and his lawyers quickly turned the documents over to the National Archives, which then contacted the Justice Department, and an investigation soon began. The way Biden described it, the problem sounded contained. And we're cooperating fully with the review, and which I hope will be finished soon, and uh, there'll be more detail at that time. It turns out the investigation isn't done, and Biden's public statement omitted a significant fact. In December, Biden's lawyers found more files, this time in his garage in Wilmington, Delaware. But on Wednesday, Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre purposely didn't talk about it, even as NPR's Franco Ordonez specifically asked whether Biden's lawyers were searching in other places. Whether Wilmington or Rehoboth, has there been any kind of like audit that's been done of where there may be others that he doesn't know about. I'm just not going to speak to this. I'm going to uh, let the process continue. It's an ongoing process. No sooner did she finish than another story broke. This one about the documents found in Wilmington back in December. It wasn't until Thursday morning that the White House confirmed it. But Jean-Pierre insisted she had been as transparent as she could be. I can't talk about this, right, because it is the Department of Justice is reviewing it. The press corps was openly skeptical. Jennifer Palmieri has seen these kinds of crises before. She worked in the Clinton and Obama White Houses and was communications director for Hillary Clinton's campaign. You know, different situation, you might want to talk this to death. You know, answer every question you possibly can answer and hope that you exhaust it. But right now, she says, communication strategy isn't the biggest concern. Foremost is not getting crosswise with the special counsel investigation. And there are also congressional Republicans to contend with. They knew this has happened before the election, but they kept it a secret from the American public. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Now we find another location that it's at, but he refused to answer. His press secretary won't answer the questions. Republicans are much more exercised about Biden's documents than those found at former President Trump's residence. A different special counsel is looking into that. But this case is quite different. While Biden's team passed off his documents like a hot potato, Trump hoarded files and misled investigators trying to get them back. 
Leon Panetta, a former White House chief of staff, told NPR, this isn't great for Biden. You know, it's both an embarrassment and damaging to the credibility of the White House because uh, obviously uh, the president uh, has criticized uh, former President Trump in the way he handled classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. Biden's counsel, Richard Sauber, said in a statement they believe that a thorough investigation will reveal that the documents were inadvertently mishandled. Tamara Keith, NPR News. Two Seattle-area school districts are taking social media companies to court. They accuse them of harming students' social, emotional, and mental health. Eilish O'Neill from member station KUOW reports. All through high school, Delaney Rustin's daughter Tessa struggled with clinical depression. And being on social media made it worse when she saw photos of her peers out doing things. She could spiral into a worse mood and feel worse about herself. Rustin is a doctor and the maker of two documentaries about the effect of screens and social media on teens. Her kids went to a public high school in North Seattle. Tessa's struggle with depression was by far the hardest thing that I've gone through in my life. And seeing her pain and knowing that I couldn't protect her from everything that was happening in screens. Rustin says these days, learning how to manage a phone is part of growing up. Now, Seattle Public Schools in a nearby district are suing the companies behind Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. The lawsuit alleges that these companies market to teens and then design algorithms that hold their attention and increase the risk of anxiety, depression, cyberbullying, and eating disorders. They're using our brain science to keep us engaged. Elizabeth Dexter Mazza is a clinical psychologist and the parent of two teens and a preteen. Which keeps us disengaged from things in real life and exacerbates depression and suicide ideation and behaviors in teens. Dexter Mazza says the social isolation of the pandemic, together with social media, have worsened young people's mental health. The general like feature, where somebody posts something and then they're waiting for acknowledgement, really can impact people's self-esteem. The Seattle School District declined to comment for this story, but the Washington State School Superintendent Chris Reichdahl says the effect of social media on young people is a critical issue. No one can continue to tell us that social media has the power of educating, power of advancing knowledge, the ability to inquire, to connect with people. You can't just sell the positives of it without recognizing that some of the darkest things students see are on there, and that too has impact and influence. The lawsuit states that schools have borne the cost. They've had to hire more counselors, train teachers to recognize the mental health needs of their students, and educate students about the dangers of social media. The companies declined to be interviewed for this story, but said in statements that they've taken steps to keep young people safe on their platforms. Meta, for example, says Instagram checks users' ages and allows parental supervision of young people's accounts. Back in North Seattle, Delaney Rustin has a photo of her daughter Tessa in her office. This is her dancing. Rustin says her daughter had loved dancing since she was five, but during her depression, getting to class was a struggle. I just remember many times her crying and saying in some of the depth of her depression, not wanting to go. And yet when she would go eight out of 10 times, she'd say, I'm so glad, mom, you pushed me to get to my class. Getting off of screens, getting exercise, and being in person with her friends, that was what she needed. Making sure that we work together to have screen time limits. Having those limits is really love. 
Rustin says, though she's not sure the current lawsuit is the best way to get there, she really does hope the schools fully fund mental health. For NPR News, I'm Ailish O'Neill in Seattle. If you or someone you know might be considering suicide or is in crisis, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen speaks to NPR coming up. Discusses She discusses the latest inflation data, the state of the U.S. economy, and what might happen next. It's 720. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Eversource knows the role energy plays in life for you and your family. And because of that understanding, in times like these, they offer plans that can help this winter. To see if you qualify, you can visit Eversource.com. I'm Peter O'Dowd. The crisis on the Colorado River has arrived at Jace Miller's family farm. He lost every drop of river water that he used to grow his crops. Will his struggle be a sign of what's ahead for 40 million people in the West? It's the grand foreshadow in literature. I mean, it's coming for everybody. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Showers mostly before noon today with high winds. We have an expected high around 54. Tonight, cloudy with a low around 34. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and a high near 38. Right now, it's 59 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people sleep well so they can live well. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Dwayne Brown. Inflation seems to be easing after months of interest rate hikes by the Fed, but what might that mean for the U.S. economy? NPR host Michelle Martin put this question to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Inflation has really been quite moderate, quite low for the last six months or so, importantly because of lower energy prices. We continue to see improvement in supply chains. Uh, Goods prices have actually been falling, and some of the supply chain issues that pushed up the prices of goods and commodities Those have really turned around. Rent indexes continue to rise, but really we see those coming down substantially over the next six months or so. I mean, I think everybody remembers that you were chair of the Fed from 2014 to 2018, and the Fed is trying to control high inflation by raising interest rates. There's still concern that the rates could go so high that it triggers a recession. Are you confident that the Fed can achieve a soft landing while raising interest rates as much as they've been? Well, I think we have an independent Fed. 
I trust them to make the best judgments that they can about what's necessary to accomplish their dual mandate, which is to bring inflation down and to try to maintain a strong labor market. I think there is a path there that makes that possible, but I wouldn't try to second-guess the Fed. Very diplomatic. Um, House Republicans passed a bill this week to roll back the additional IRS funding that was included in the Inflation Reduction Act. That's that's not likely to happen, given that the Democrats control the Senate. They oppose this. There's a veto threat from the White House. But could you just tell people why the administration feels that the IRS needs this additional funding? We have an extremely unfair tax system in which honest lower and middle income households pay the taxes that are due. It's mainly reported to the IRS on W-2 forms, and the IRS knows about that income, but they're failing to collect taxes from very wealthy and extremely high-income taxpayers. It's estimated that there is a loss of on the order of $7 trillion in tax revenues over the next decade, almost a trillion dollars a year, because the IRS simply hasn't been able to hire the staff it needs to do the sophisticated audits to collect that. On top of that, Americans deserve that someone, when they call the IRS, will answer the telephone, and they really deserve much more modern and efficient ways of interacting with the IRS. And the allocation in the Inflation Reduction Act of $80 billion over 10 years to the IRS is what it needs to make sure that we have a fair tax system. So it's an equity issue. It's also a customer service issue. And I also think I hear you saying that tax collectors are basically being outgunned by wealthy tax cheats. Is that about right? I think that's fair. What's going to be your metric of success for the year? If you and I were to speak at the same time next year, what will you consider your major accomplishments? My priorities would be to see inflation come down to much lower levels and to do that in the context of a job market that remains strong with jobs readily available for people who want to work. We're seeing a renaissance of manufacturing in the clean energy sector, in semiconductors, infrastructure jobs, and we're going to see improved productivity and faster growth and improvements in parts of the country in communities that have suffered for a long time and haven't enjoyed some of the expansion that we've seen in the coasts and the part of the United States that have done very well. That was Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen in conversation with NPR's Michelle Martin. Hear more of their interview tomorrow on All Things Considered. A report out this week shows the U.S. had 18 different weather disasters last year that cost a billion dollars or more. And Bears Nathan Rott has more. $165 billion. That's how much damage weather-related disasters did in the U.S. in 2022, not to mention the loss of life. At least 474 people, according to the new report from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Rick Spinrad is NOAA's administrator. Climate change is creating more and more intense extreme events 
that cause significant damage and often sets off cascading hazards, like intense drought followed by devastating wildfires, followed by dangerous flooding and mudslides, as we're seeing, for example, as a consequence of the atmospheric rivers in California right now. Climate change is a major driver of the recent uptick in so-called billion-dollar disasters, which often cost far more. Hurricane Ian, for example, which walloped South Florida and the Caribbean, caused nearly $113 billion in damage in the U.S. alone. But the other major issue contributing to that cost is how we build and where. People are still moving to flood-prone areas, to fire-prone areas, to the drought-stricken West. Rachel Cletus is a policy director at the Union of Concerned Scientists. At this point, we're still far too often reacting to these as one-off disasters. And the reality is climate change is worsening the trend here. And we have to do much better at getting out ahead and protecting and preparing communities in advance of disasters. Particularly, she says, low-income communities and communities of color, which are disproportionately impacted by natural disasters. European climate researchers confirmed that the last eight years have been the warmest in modern world history. And perhaps most concerning, the cause of climate change, greenhouse gases from human activities, are still rising. The nonpartisan research firm Rhodium Group put out a report showing that despite the Biden administration's pledges and the massive climate bill passed by Congress last year, U.S. emissions rose again in 2022, risking even worse climate change in the future. Nathan Rott, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up here on Morning Edition, it's been six months since the launch of the National 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. We check in on how well it's working. It's 729. Join Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering on Monday, January 30th at City Space for a conversation and food tasting with celebrity chef Tiffany Faison. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's current season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at BSO.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden is pledging to cooperate with the special counsel's investigation into his handling of classified documents. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports. Two batches of documents were discovered, some of them classified, one at Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware, and the other at a private office in Washington, D.C. that Biden used after his time as vice president. The White House says Biden doesn't know what's in the documents, adding that the administration had done the right thing by notifying the National Archives immediately. Both sets of records were discovered late last year, but that was not made public until this week. California's governor says the state is expected to see heavy rains and potential flooding for another week. NPR's Lauren Summer says complicating things is older infrastructure that's not designed to handle the volume of water being generated by climate change. 
a lot of rainfalls and the stormwater infrastructure, you know, which is those drains and pipes that go underground, it simply can't handle it. Sometimes they get clogged, but other times they're just not designed for that much water. A law passed by Congress last month requires the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to update its rainfall data for cities across the U.S. to include climate change forecasts. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Cambridge officials are promising a transparent investigation into this month's fatal police shooting of a 20-year-old man. They made that promise at a raucous community meeting last night to discuss the killing of UMass Boston student Arif Syed Faisal. WBUR's Deborah Becker was there. Hundreds of people questioned and often heckled officials. They wanted more details beyond the initial statements that Faisal fled from police and refused to drop a knife. Police said after using a less-than-lethal weapon, they shot and killed him. Middlesex County District Attorney Marion Ryan said an independent judicial inquest is underway. People have children. They want to feel safe about their children. They want to know yesterday what the explanation is. We're not in a position to have all that information because at the same time you want a thorough investigation. The officer who has not been identified is a seven-year veteran of the Cambridge Department and is on paid administrative leave. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. State regulators are aware of potential campaign finance violations by Massachusetts GOP Chair Jim Lyons. State Party Treasurer Pat Crowley told a told fellow Republicans yesterday he reported the alleged issue to authorities. Crowley claims last year Lyons coordinated with a political action committee to fund opposition research into Maura Healy. She was a candidate for governor at the time. The Chelmsford Public Library says it will host a pastor's story hour today after facing criticism for initially canceling it. The Shepherd's Church planned to host the event in response to drag queen story hours. The library said yesterday it was canceling the event because the church was in violation of its policies. But late last night, the library said its legal counsel advised it to keep the event as scheduled. Governor Healy and Mayor Michelle Wu will be among the dignitaries on hand this afternoon for the dedication of a memorial honoring Martin Luther King Jr. and his wife Coretta. The Kings met in Boston. The Boston Common statue depicts their arms embracing. Artist Hank Willis Thomas says he was inspired by the way King hugged his wife after he won the 1964 Nobel Peace Prize. I saw how her body was upholding his so here you see like the weight of the sculpture the weight of his arms are on her shoulders and i thought that that was a really powerful metaphor for their relationship and her role in history willis thomas says his design allows visitors to walk under the sculpture to help them feel like they are being embraced it's 7:34. we're funded by you our listeners and by the handel and haydn society Feel the adrenaline-packed power of Beethoven's Heroic Symphony. January 20th and 22nd at Symphony Hall. HandlinHyden.org. The Bruins' 19-game winning streak at the Garden came to an end last night. The 3-0's defeat by the Seattle Kraken was the Bees' first regulation home loss this season. They'll skate at home again tomorrow against the Toronto Maple Leafs. And it was a winning night for the Celtics in Brooklyn. The team outscored the Nets by 11 points last night. They play the Hornets in Charlotte tomorrow. 
Rain this morning, then cloudy and windy in the low to mid-50s today. Tonight, it falls to the mid-30s and stays overcast. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, only in the upper 30s. A chance of snow Sunday morning, then mostly cloudy and in the upper 30s. It's 59 degrees in Boston at 735. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Dwayne Brown in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. It's been nearly six months since the launch of 988. That's the National Mental Health Helpline. The number's easy to remember, and that's important for someone in the midst of an emotional crisis. In a short time, the support line has expanded its reach, and there are call centers across the country. But how effective is it? NPR's Ritu Chatterjee has an update. The 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline received over 1.7 million calls, texts, and chats in its first five months. That's nearly half a million more than made with the old 10-digit suicide prevention lifeline during the same period the year before. We see the uptick in volume as an indicator that more people are aware of the service and are able to access it. Kimberly Williams is the president and CEO of Vibrant Emotional Health, the nonprofit that oversees the National 988 network. She says not only did more people reach out, more people were connected to help. Significant investments in capacity at uh, the federal, state, and local levels really helped to ensure that the lifeline was able to respond to many more people in crisis. For one, there were fewer abandoned calls compared to 2021. An average wait times to speak to a counselor fell from close to three minutes in November 2021 to just 36 seconds last November. Dr. John Palmieri is overseeing the 988 launch for the federal government. So more people are being connected to those trained counselors and they're being connected more quickly to the life-saving services that are available. He says there's been a huge rise in people connecting with 988 through texts and chats, a preferred mode of contact by younger people. Those younger people in crisis tend to be in more acute stages of distress, and so making sure that they're connected to the lifeline more quickly is critically important as well. Community Crisis Services in Heightsville, Maryland, is one of the 200 or so centers that make up the national 988 network. Tim Jansen heads the organization. He says the recent federal investments have helped him beef up capacity. We probably had roughly 75 or 80 folks that work the phones and chat. And so now we're up to pushing 300. But he adds other crisis centers across the country are still struggling to hire. You know, it doesn't pay a million dollars. The work can be hard. There's secondary and tertiary trauma related to listening to calls, you know, or even doing chats. And data shows that some states are doing a lot better than others. In Maryland, where Janssen works, the 988 response rate in November was 89 percent. In Texas, it was 63 percent. Janssen adds that connecting people to continuing mental health care in their community remains a big challenge across the country. There's a significant shortage of social workers and mental health professionals that people can see. People wind up at places that have long waiting lists. 
And until there are more providers in communities, he says, 988 can only do so much to address someone's ongoing mental health needs. Read the Chatterjee and PR News. 988 hotline workers are not only dealing with an increased volume of calls, but they are seeing more calls from non-English speaking people. We're going to turn now to a conversation I had with Natalie Gutierrez. She's a New York-based author and therapist who treats intergenerational trauma and other forms of complex post-traumatic stress. I asked her how the 988 hotline is helping some of the marginalized communities she sees in her practice. I'm appreciative that there is a space that you can reach out to 24-7 for everyone, and especially marginalized communities that just struggle sometimes even talking with other people face-to-face about just what they're holding and the pain that they're carrying. And it seems like the negative stigma often associated with mental health has been changing in recent years. Social media, more people speaking out. What are you actually hearing among migrant communities? Well, I think we still have a ways to go for that stigma to shift. And I think we're getting a lot more people using these helplines, using these crisis lines, because folks are really trying to move away from these stigmas, from these stereotypes of, you know, being seen as weak for seeking help. And so I think we're seeing, you know, some of a rise in folks using these resources because there's a movement away from wanting to stay in in the place of internalizing those stereotypes and those stigmas. Mm -hmm. What I want to see also is brainstorming and collaborating collectively on how we can also prevent suicide and crisis in different ways. What are we doing structurally and institutionally to shift things for marginalized communities and folks that are, you know, immigrants and everyone? We're actually creating or tending to the actual wounding and the things that actually need to shift in our society. And there are still some barriers, some basic barriers for migrants to access mental health services. Talk about that. The barriers to mental health are financial resources to access them. And I think also having access to mental health resources and, you know, and and psychologists or just medical professionals, clinicians that also aren't pathologizing, especially folks that have racialized identities, Black, Indigenous, POCs coming from lineages where ancestors were experimented on medically. And so there's already a lot of the time folks are coming in with distrust toward medical systems and medical professionals and authority. And it can be really hard to then meet with medical professionals that are then going to maybe label you or just give you a diagnosis. And sometimes these are larger diagnoses. And then comes the shame and the stigma attached to how folks then see themselves or how they're treated by even their practitioners and and within their own communities and their own families. So these things really have ripple effects. So do you think this hotline can actually help save lives? Absolutely. I think it's going to be really helpful in offering folks a space if their therapists are not available at the moment and they're feeling like they have an urge to self-harm or to lean towards suicide or just are in crisis and need someone to connect with, that they can call here and use this as a support, as something to lean on. 
and there has to be more that comes from that after. That's therapist Natalie Gutierrez. Her book, The Pain We Carry, provides tools for people experiencing complex post-traumatic stress. Thanks again. Thank you. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide or in crisis, call or text the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Just those three digits, 988. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, a nonprofit takes over the vacant Oberon Theater space in Cambridge with big plans for a multi-arts space. And in our next hour, the U.S., France, and Germany have recently announced plans to send armored fighting vehicles to Ukraine. They're an upgrade from anything sent before, but they're not exactly what Ukraine wants. In your forecast, showers and high winds this morning, then cloudy this afternoon. Temperatures may rise to the mid-50s, mid-30s tonight under cloudy skies, then a mostly cloudy Saturday that will be much colder, only in the 30s. Right now it's 58 degrees in Boston at 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA, with a powerful new work by Barbara Kruger, one of the leading artists of the time. Plan your visit at icaboston.org. And Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at zevin.com. Now, in business news, the Hingham Apple Store has reopened for the first time since a deadly crash in November. The store closed after an SUV crashed through its front windows, killing one person and injuring 20 others. There are now metal barriers out front to stop vehicles. The Hyannis City Council is approving plans to add apartments to the Cape Cod Mall. They gave a developer a zoning approval to add housing to the property. The Cape Cod Times reports the approval does does require the development to include affordable housing. Massachusetts is ranked the number one state for families. That's according to a report from the finance website WalletHub. High marks in education and child care and low infant mortality added to the state's ranking. Vermont and New Hampshire also received top 10 rankings. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Drexel University whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at drexel.edu slash ambitioncantwait. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A little more than a year ago, the American Repertory Theater closed Oberon, its beloved second stage on the edge of Harvard Square. Oberon was a home for fringe performers. Now a recently formed nonprofit is taking over the space. WBUR's Amelia Mason spoke with the founder about his vision for a new local theater. The tall front doors of 2 Arrow Street in Cambridge have been shuttered for almost three years. With little fanfare, David Alshuler unlocks the entrance and ushers me inside. Well, welcome to our space. 
We walk through a big foyer, which has been stripped bare. The theater itself has been gutted. No more catwalk, no more bar. The floor has been ripped up to reveal smooth concrete. Here, we've got some uh, drawings. Altshuler shows me a set of plans for the seating. The idea is to have seats that could be hidden away or pulled out from the wall, kind of like the bleachers in a high school gym. It'd be a telescopic seating system, so you could actually have it be either you know, 12 rows deep and 240 seats, or it might just be three or six rows deep. It allows us to have different size audiences so that every show, gets the audience gets sized to what's appropriate to that show. In addition to the black box, Altshuler is converting an empty storefront next door into a studio that doubles as a small venue. He expects to invest $2.5 million, much of it his own, into the renovations. He wants to create a blank canvas that producers can set up in every configuration imaginable. The space as envisioned is going to be this flexible, multi-art space where, sure, it could be a nightclub one night, but it could also be a dance recital, or it could be a straight play, or it could be a set of performing artists. And so we want to be able to- Al Chuler is an entrepreneur with a background in tech, finance, and nonprofit leadership. This project is driven in part by his wife, Sharman Alshuler, the founder of Moonbox Productions. Her small theater company has won numerous awards, but struggled to find a consistent place to put on shows. For years, I've sort of fantasized about the idea of it wouldn't be great to have, you know, your own space, and it, it was always like, forget it. Then she heard that Oberon was closing. And I said, you know, it's such a great local theater, and wouldn't that be cool if they actually end up staying a theater and maybe Moonbox could do something? Her husband took the lead on the competitive process of pitching the idea to Harvard University, which owns the building. Part of his goal was to provide a stage for Moonbox as a resident theater company. But Al Chuler says he wanted the theater to be available to everyone. So he contacted the Cambridge Community Foundation, thinking the charity's connections would be helpful. Here's Gita Pradhan, the foundation's president. The idea is that we will reach out deeply into the community. We will bring community groups in, have conversations with them, you know, make sure that they know about this opportunity. An affordable rental model will be subsidized partly by private events. The Cambridge Community Foundation will also administer a fund bankrolled by Altshuler's nonprofit, Arrow Street Arts. The fund will offer grants to groups that want to use the space but can't afford to. So that smaller groups, particularly BIPOC organizations uh, and theater groups can actually, we can subsidize the cost of their ability to be able to produce here. Pradhan says the foundation got involved because it wanted to help address a huge problem for the arts in Cambridge, the loss of space. Improv Boston, they lost their space. Green Street Studios lost their space. EMF building redevelopment resulted in a loss of space for musicians. Arrow Street Arts will fill the void left by another big loss, the closure of Oberon. Though Altshuler's black box is different from its predecessor, it's hard to predict if Oberon's burlesque and circus performers will want to use the new space. But some local producers are excited by the new design, like Shanaz Derek, the founder of a small community theater called Theater Uncorked. The updating of the uh, the green room, the dressing rooms, all of that stuff for an actor is, you know, is really important. Accommodating performers is a big part of the theater's design. Altshuler also wants to make the space super accessible, with wider seats, all-gender restrooms, and a perfectly smooth floor for wheelchair use. When an audience member or an artist comes here, do they feel welcome? Do they feel like they belong in the space? There's a lot of work to do before that question can be answered. 
Altshuler has to hire a staff and finish the renovations. If all goes as planned, Arrow Street Arts will open fully at the end of the year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. There's another hour of morning edition coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston. And Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana. Happy Friday. Happy Friday, Rupa. We've got a complex one today, and and perfect, because on Friday mornings, what we try to do is dive beneath the headlines Mm -hmm. on a story and get at the complexity. Really complex one today. So revelations this week, you talked about them earlier today on Morning Edition, about uh, unpaid bills in the Massachusetts GOP, the hiring of a private investigator to look at Governor Healy's Mm -hmm. romantic life when she was AG, possible inappropriate interaction with the PAC about paying that bill. Um, So a lot of mess there. At the same time, The governor did reveal only a week ago that she's been in a two-year relationship uh, with somebody who did work for her Mm -hmm. in the attorney general's office, although the governor says they weren't involved while the partner worked there. Which was an exclusive to the Globe. Which was an exclusive to the Globe, right? So, one, what's going on with the GOP? What's appropriate and inappropriate there? But also questions about what's the role of opposition research and when does a candidate have an obligation to reveal, et cetera. So really interesting panel. We are going to uncomb all of it. As usual, I'm so in admiration of your ambition because just one <laughs> part of that could deserve an right? hour. All day, right? All yeah. day, right? Yeah. Thank you, Tiziana. Thanks, Rupa. That's Radio Boston today at 11. Right now it's 7.52. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Dwayne Brown. And I'm Leila Faldil. Margot Price has a new album out today. It's called Strays. And it's clear the alt-country star has no interest in being typecast. I didn't want to get stuck in thinking like, Is this country? Is this Americana? Is this rock and roll? Is this psychedelia? You know, everybody wants to label things and and put them in a box. And I just, I wanted this album to be feral and free. Price draws on her own life for inspiration. Her struggles with alcohol, losing a newborn, and years ago, the family farm but also the joys of love and sex. Now that she's made it, I asked Price what it's like in an industry that can be unkind, especially to women. It's really incredible to be able to have different seasons and I'm aging, I'm about to be 40 this year. And there's a lot of fear, I think, that this culture wants you to feel when you're a woman. Yeah, when they age us out. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like, oh, you're not going to have worth if you're not attractive. Or I've struggled with self-image my whole life. And, you know, the success and the the money and the fame, those things don't really make your problems go away. Sometimes they amplify them. You had this epiphany on mushrooms when you were 19 that that had you dropping out of college, trying to make it in music. And today you're a star and it's come full circle. I read that this album was written after you took a bunch of mushrooms. That is correct. Can you tell me about that? I have had absolute revelations that I do not think that I would have came to had I not taken psilocybin. Also, microdosing and to help with my anxiety and depression. And I was actually able to 
have a, a psychedelic experience that also led me to quit drinking alcohol, which is something that I had truly kind of struggled with for years. I really wanted to take away a lot of the stigma with that and just be transparent about how I've used them and how they have helped me with addiction and depression. We talked about the vulnerability on this album, but that's not easy to be so raw and real. And maybe when you're writing the songs, it's one thing, but now you're sharing the songs with all of us, with the world. So what's that like? It's difficult to be vulnerable. Yeah. This culture doesn't always see that as a strong characteristic, but if you can find joy after going through something really tragic and if you can figure out how to channel that and transform it, I think that is the whole meaning of life. White trash, trailer trash, they said you'd always be and you said one day you'll see. But lately you start to wonder if maybe they were right. You know, I listen to Lydia a lot, and I don't know if that's because I spent a lot of time in abortion clinics before Roe v. Wade was overturned and after, but it really stuck with me listening to this version of kind of what I watch people deal with. Can you talk about writing it? Oh, it was one of those really mystical songs that kind of came to me, honestly, after weeks of, of really being kind of in a manic state. I was touring a lot. I was, I was a little afraid and uh, I just kind of burned out and... And that song just kind of poured out of me and none of it rhymed. There wasn't even really a melody. I've always wanted to write a song like that. Just make a decision, Lydia. Just make a decision. It's yours. I mean, those lines, just make a decision, Lydia. Just make a decision. It's yours. Close your eyes and make a wish. Hear the whisper of God. I mean, I kind of couldn't get those out of my head thinking about everything that the last year has brought. Yeah, I mean... Unfortunately, I, I, I wrote the soundtrack to probably what a lot of women in this country are thinking and are going through at this point. Close your eyes and make a wish Hear the whisper of God He used to talk like him he used to see his face in the clouds And I see your face in the moonlight You also talked about sheer moments of joy, of euphoria. Is there one song in this album that you would point to as that? I think Light Me Up. Mm -hmm. It starts in a very um, sweet, loving place, and then it, it does escalate to basically this big orgasm. And I think, you know, as we're talking about women's rights and women's bodies and women's health, it's something that people have been really uncomfortable of, is women's pleasure. And, you know, I thought of all the songs that, that men have written about their <laughs> orgasms, that, that we should explore that. I mean, you tackle so much addiction, reproductive rights, depression, joy, it's just such a span. <laughs> yeah. When I wrote Hell in the Heartland, that was very fresh after I quit drinking. Mm. And it is talking about living in the present. And it's a very dark song, but it was incredibly cathartic to write and to play.
it's beautiful to hear that, that you can access the pain of your past, but you don't have to live in it. Yeah. But now, is there any part of you that maybe wants to hold things back and go back to a simpler time? I always say misery shared is misery halved, but you also really have to take care because the internet, social media can be really brutal place and I I have to protect myself I have to take breaks I have to mute people that are you know damaging and violent and I am trying to learn how to set boundaries and how to kind of protect me Margot Price her new album Strays is out today Margot thank you so much for this beautiful conversation hey thank you I, I really appreciate it I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Ahead of the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, the city of Selma has been hit by tornadoes that caused deaths and devastation across the South. It's Friday, January 13th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up in an important shift, France, Germany, and the U.S. have all agreed to send armored tanks to Ukraine. I think it's a sign that we understand that we have to go all the way with the Ukrainians. Also this hour, an angry audience confronts Cambridge officials over the police shooting of a 20-year-old man. The officer involved is on paid administrative leave. Why aren't you suspending him, firing him? If it is in your power, you can do it, but you decided not to do it. And Japan's prime minister visits the White House just as that country is building up its military for the first time since World War II. Rain and wind today in the 50s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Attorney General Merrick Garland is appointing a special counsel to investigate the discovery of classified documents at President Biden's Delaware home and another location. NPR's Claudia Grisalos reports House Republicans are seeking to conduct their own investigation. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy told reporters that Congress should investigate the discoveries of White House documents tied to President Biden's time as vice president under the Obama administration. Not once, but now we're finding in two different locations classified information just out there in the open. But McCarthy stopped short of saying which Republican-led panel should lead the probe. House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer has already said his panel was investigating and will hold a related hearing. However, Comer said Attorney General Merrick Garland's appointment of a special counsel could limit his committee's ability to conduct a separate probe. Claudia Grisales, NPR News. Washington. Seven people have been killed in a gigantic storm system that barreled across the south yesterday. The National Weather Service says more than 30 tornadoes were reported from Kentucky to Mississippi. Most of them hit Alabama. Owen Anderson works at a car wash in Moulton, north of Birmingham, Alabama. He ducked inside the building for safety. Me and my attendant got my, my buddy working here with me. We ran and ran in the center of the tunnel, lifted it up and hopped in the pit where all the mud and stuff goes in the car. That's the safest place to be. Meanwhile, the National Weather Service says more storms are poised to strike the West Coast today, lasting through the weekend. Storms since Christmas have left at least 17 people dead in California. Flood watches are posted for northern and central California.
Russia claims that its forces and mercenaries have captured the eastern Ukrainian town of Solodar. The Ukrainian government rejects this claim. NPR's Tim Mack reports from Kyiv, brutal fighting continues in the Ukrainian town. Before the war, Solodar had a population of around 80,000 and was known for its salt mines. Now, it has become the focus of brutal Russian and Ukrainian urban warfare. President Volodymyr Zelensky said in his overnight address that the fighting in Solodar and Bakhmut is the top issue for his military staff. He said he discussed with them what reinforcements might be necessary, as well as future military operations. Russian and Ukrainian sources have traded conflicting claims. The Russian military said Friday that Solidar is firmly under their control. But the Ukrainian military said these claims, quote, do not correspond to reality. Battles are going on in Solidar. Tim Mack, NPR News, Kyiv. President Biden welcomes Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida to the White House later this morning. Japan has recently announced it will significantly hike its defense spending. The Biden administration has praised that decision. You're listening to NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinhoi. A Massachusetts police officer accused of sexually harassing a student while working at a university has resigned. The officer was part of a WBOR investigation into cops who find new jobs in Massachusetts after being fired or ousted from their old departments. WBOR's Walter Ruthman reports. A 20-year-old college student accused David Loudon of sexually harassing and groping her in 2010 when he was a campus police officer at UMass Dartmouth. University police began an investigation after she complained, but Loudon resigned before it was finished. He got a new job three years later in Blackstone. Police hired him to work at the local high school and investigate sexual assaults. Blackstone's town administrator said she never heard of the allegations against Loudon until contacted by WBUR. The town removed him from his school assignment and began its own investigation. David Loudon resigned on Saturday. He could not be reached for comment. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey are asking the State Department of Public Utilities what new measures it's taking to ensure safety on the T. The two senators sent a letter yesterday to the DPU expressing ongoing concerns about the department's oversight of the T. Markey and Warren summoned the department to a federal hearing in October for questioning about a series of failures at the transit agency. A former worker at the Boston headquarters of the Japanese biotech giant Takeda is facing federal charges. Investigators say she stole millions of dollars from the company. They say the woman and her boyfriend pumped money out of Takeda and into a series of fake consulting firms that never delivered any services. An All-American soccer player from MIT is the NCAA Woman of the Year. Karina Groff is a two-year captain of the soccer team. She's part of three conference championship teams and participated in four NCAA tournaments. While accepting her honor, Groff recognized that last year was the 50th anniversary of Title IX. That's the law that prohibits discrimination based on sex in educational activities. I want to be a part of, you know, keeping that moving forward. I think there's still work to be done. Groff is an aspiring physician who is working on her master's in biomedical engineering at MIT. It's 8.06.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation. For more than 95 years, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at Mott.org. The Bruins are recovering from their first regulation loss on home ice. They were defeated 3-0 to by the Seattle Kraken last night. The Bruins will skate at the Garden again tomorrow against Toronto. The Celtics are celebrating a victory against the Nets. The final score was 109-98. to The Seas will be on on the road again tomorrow in Charlotte. The warmer weather today will bring rain and wind with it. Expect wind gusts of up to 40 miles an hour. Temperatures may rise as high as 56 degrees. Tonight, mostly cloudy and temperatures in the low 30s. Tomorrow, cloudy with a slight chance of snow showers and temperatures may reach the upper 30s. Sunday, another chance of snow in the morning. Then cloudy, temperatures will rise to near 40 degrees. It's 58 degrees in Boston at 807. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Dwayne Brown in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Falden in Washington, D.C. The U.S., France, and Germany all recently announced they will send new armored fighting vehicles to Ukraine. They're not the heavy main battle tanks Kyiv has been asking for, but as NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports, what some refer to as, quote, light tanks are the first Western-designed vehicles of their kind to be sent, and they mark a change in what the West is willing to provide. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky began a recent nightly address by thanking France for its AMX-10 armored fighting vehicles. France is taking European defense support for Ukraine to a new level with these light tanks, said Zelensky. I thank President Macron for his leadership. The following day, the U.S. and Germany committed to give Ukraine Bradley and Martyr armored personnel carriers. Ulrika Franca is a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. She focuses on security. These are important systems insofar as they allow Ukraine to put infantry soldiers closer to the action in a way that's kind of safe and secure for them. It's not quite big combat tanks yet, but it will make a difference for the counteroffensive. Until recently, powerful equipment like this was off the table, says Sylvie Kaufmann, foreign affairs columnist with French newspaper Le Monde. I think it's a sign that we understand that we have to go all the way with the Ukrainians and and try to help them more efficiently to win this war. President Macron has been criticized for saying that Russian security should be taken into account and for keeping an open line with President Vladimir Putin. But in his New Year's Eve address, Macron left no doubt that France will support Ukrainians until the end. Your fight is heroic and you inspire us, he said. France will be by your side until victory. For Germany, there's been a psychological barrier to going too far to help Ukraine because of its own past. In World War II, the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union, killing millions of soldiers and civilians. But the war in Ukraine is changing what Franco calls Germany's anti-military mentality. We have these rather absurd discussions here in Berlin on, you know, we're only delivering defensive weapons, not offensive ones, only light ones, not heavy ones, only older and not modern Western systems. These kind of, you know, made up distinctions and definitions and so-called red lines that the government sets. All three countries' armored fighting vehicles were designed during the Cold War to defeat Soviet defensive positions and hold ground. Leonid Polyakova, a former deputy defense minister of Ukraine, says the West has evolved from giving Ukraine the weapons required not to lose 
to giving it the weapons it needs to win. Our partners, they needed some time to come to terms uh, what Ukraine can do, what Ukraine can master, and what Ukraine needs. Polyakova spent 20 years in the Soviet military. He says with Ukraine showing it can beat an army that was not long ago considered the world's second most powerful, the West is shifting its priorities. Major powers supporting Ukraine could have decided that it is in their interest to allow Ukraine to move faster. Because the longer war goes, the more weapons will be required. So... Maybe time is a factor now, not only unpredictability of Russia. Analysts say the decision to send armored fighting vehicles could hasten the sending of heavier main battle tanks needed to break through fortified Russian defenses and artillery. Delivering them is something Ukraine's Western allies are already discussing. Eleanor, just one question before you go. What are those discussions now? Well, you know what, Leila? This week, Poland said it wants to give the Leopard 2 main battle tank to Ukraine, but they're German designed, so Poland would need Germany's permission. But that could be coming because yesterday, Germany's vice chancellor said Germany should not stand in the way of other countries taking decisions to support Ukraine. Analysts say Britain is also heavily considering sending its Challenger 2 tanks. And the U.S. is said to be pushing Germany and Britain to approve and send these tanks to Ukraine as soon as possible. A decision on that could be announced as early as next week in a meeting of the contact group, which are Ukraine's allies. In the meantime, yesterday, France's defense minister said his country's armored fighting vehicles will be on the ground within two months, perhaps around the time of expected spring counteroffensives. So Ukraine's foreign minister said that sending these armored vehicles had broken a taboo on providing key weapons to Ukraine, and he might be right. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley, thanks for your reporting. Thank you. Ukraine is receiving more than light tanks from its allies. Ukrainians will soon train to use Patriot missile systems at an army base in Oklahoma. Brigadier General Pat Ryder outlined the training at a Pentagon press conference. It will consist of training in the classrooms. It will consist of training on the Patriot systems. And then, of course, uh, in a simulation lab as well, before they actually deploy the capability on the battlefield. Now, the Pentagon also announced plans back in December to train large units of Ukrainian soldiers in combined armed tactics in Germany. Raphael Cohen, a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation, joins me now to talk about how this could affect the war in Ukraine. Good morning, Dr. Cohen. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. What is the principle of combat arms tactics, and how does this training help the Ukrainians in combat? So combined arms is the integration of multiple different kinds of weapons on to achieve an assault and military effect. So in this case, infantry, tanks, artillery, aircraft, if possible. And there's only a handful of places that can train realistically on that. Um, the United States has some of them in Germany, uh, but also in the United States. And so the ability for us to train the Ukrainians to conduct these very complex maneuvers is really key for them building combat capability as they push forward with their offensive. And the U.S. and its Western allies have actually been training Ukrainian fighters since the war began more than 10 months ago. How much of an escalation is this new training? So I don't think this is really a difference in kind. It's a difference in scale, though. I mean, even before the conflict began, we had a training mission actually in Ukraine uh, up until February of uh, 2022. Um, what this does, though, is allow us to train at a greater scale. And 
And I think that is in some ways an escalation, but perhaps not as much as people may uh, think it is. Train on a greater scale. Now, there was some initial apprehension, of course, among the U.S. and its allies about using weapons that might provoke Russia. In your view, why has that position changed? So I think there are two big factors at play. First, we're now almost a year into this conflict. And as the conflict has progressed, I think American policymakers have felt a little bit more comfortable about what Russian red lines are, and therefore a little bit more comfortable about what kind of equipment we can provide the Ukrainians. The second major factor, however, is frankly Russian brutality in Ukraine. Now that shapes our risk calculus, but it also shapes the risk calculus of our NATO allies. And I think your previous reporting highlighted this fact. And so when we take any sort of um, attempt to aid the Ukrainians, we want to do that in lockstep with our NATO partners. And so as Russia's actions have begun to uh, emphasize its sort of increasing home towards civilians, that makes the alliance as a whole want to take more proactive measures to help the Ukrainians in their own defense. And Dr. Cohen, my last question here, the Russians haven't really used their air force much so far. What's keeping them out of the skies over Ukraine? So there are several factors at play here. Uh, one is Russian pilots. Uh, there's a shortage of them. Russian equipment um, is also has been suffering from serious maintenance issues. And then to uh, further combat this, the Russians are also suffering from uh, munitions shortfalls as well. Now, in addition to all of that on the Russian side, there's also the fact that we've been providing a lot of air defenses to the Ukrainians, and the Russians don't want to lose any more equipment. And, sir, we're going to leave it right there. Raphael Cohen, thank you for your time this morning. Thanks for having me on. Deadly tornadoes touched down in Alabama yesterday, leaving behind extensive damage and killing at least six people in the state, according to the local authorities. Alabama's governor has issued a state of emergency for counties impacted by the storms. One of the first cities the tornado hit is often in the news for other reasons. Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett went to Selma after the storm passed and has this report. When I got to Selma, traffic was at a standstill. The storm had cut a path through town and closed some of the major intersections. Usually, Selma has heavy traffic during the annual commemoration of the 1965 Bloody Sunday March. On that day, Alabama state troopers beat protesters like the late Congressman John Lewis as they marched for voting rights across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. On Thursday, cars crowded the streets for a different reason. Some were driven by parents anxious to check on their kids and pick them up from school. Margaret Jones, principal of the Edgewood Elementary School, gets this. Today was, to sum it up in a nutshell, was traumatic. It was a surprise. Jones said they heard that some of the homes of their students have been destroyed. Downtown, traffic lights have stopped working, the power is out, and businesses and homes are leveled. The interim fire chief says his team conducted 30 rescues of people who were trapped. Victim safety is on the mind of Emergency Services Director Toya Stiles Caruso. Her phone was out when her family tried to call her. But unfortunately, they did not get in contact with me, so my focus was on the citizens of Dallas County to make sure that they are safe. But Caruso reassures me that her family is okay. The tornado has hit Selma the day before the start of the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday weekend, a time that residents marked the birthday of the civil rights leader who spent a lot of time here. This weekend, 
In addition to the commemoration, they'll start the process of rebuilding. For NPR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Selma, Alabama. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, what's ahead for Republicans in the House? They're planning to oppose abortion, investigate Democrats, and target IRS funding. It's 819. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. I'm Peter O'Dowd. The crisis on the Colorado River has arrived at Jace Miller's family farm. He lost every drop of river water that he used to grow his crops. Will his struggle be a sign of what's ahead for 40 million people in the West? It's the grand foreshadow in literature. I mean, it's coming for everybody. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Showers mostly before noon today, and we'll have some high winds. The expected high is around 54. Tonight, cloudy and a low around 34. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and a high near 38. There's a slight chance of rain in the late afternoon. Sunday morning, there's a chance of snow, then mostly cloudy with a high near 38. And we'll have some more of those gusty winds. It's 58 degrees in Boston. Thanks for being with 90.9 WBUR on this Friday morning. Today, we're tracking the news of a special counsel taking charge of the investigation into potentially mishandled documents found at President Biden's home and office. Keep listening on 90.9 and on the WBUR mobile app for that. And on WBUR.org, the new weekly Boston News Quiz is up. It's 820. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Noom, providing an online evaluation and the tools to help people lead healthier lives through behavior change. More information at Noom, N-O-O-M.com. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at WTGrantFDN.org. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food, on the web at theschmidt.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. I'm Dwayne Brown. And I'm A. Martinez. After a dramatic fight to elect Kevin McCarthy speaker, House Republicans pivoted this week to trying to make good on their campaign promises. The first pieces of legislation taken up in the new Congress are meant to send a message on what the majority's governing priorities will be. 
For the Republican-controlled House, that means cutting government funding, opposing abortion rights, and investigating the federal investigators. NPR's Barbara Sprunt joins us now. So Republicans uh, intend to launch a number of high-profile investigations, but this week they also voted along party lines to create a new subcommittee on the, quote, weaponization of the federal government. Uh, What's this panel supposed to do? Well, this falls under the House Judiciary. It has pretty broad jurisdiction. It will have the authority to investigate the government, including ongoing criminal investigations at the Justice Department. This has been a focus for incoming uh, Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan, who has long been a vocal critic of the FBI. Speaker McCarthy has said it could even look into the handling of classified documents that were found at President Biden's Delaware residence and at his old think tank office. It could go from that committee or others, but I think Congress has to investigate this. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has called this committee extreme and noted that with Democrats in control of the Senate, not much of the House agenda will be getting through. All right. Now, in the first uh, new bill of the new Congress, uh, Republicans voted this week to undermine a familiar political target for the party. And that's the Internal Revenue Service. Exactly. And it would undo about $80 billion in new funding for the IRS that was passed into law over the summer as part of the Inflation Reduction Act. With that Democratic firewall in the Senate, this is a great example of a bill that plays great with the conservative base, but is never going to be signed into law by President Biden. The money is intended to increase staffing at the agency, but Republicans have claimed falsely during the campaign season that it would create a, quote, army of IRS agents to go after Americans and small businesses. The Republican bill would add to the deficit. I think it's worth noting the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office has estimated that without this new funding for more staff to improve tax collection, the deficit would actually grow by about $114 billion over the next decade. So it would cost more than the new funding. I know abortion also was an issue this week, and House Republicans passed two abortion-related measures. Barbara, is this surprising, considering that opposition to abortion rights is one of the reasons why Republicans didn't fare as well in the midterm elections? Well, opposition to abortion rights is a pretty universally held view in the Republican Party at this point. It's another example of how they use this first week to not only make good on their campaign promises that they ran on in the midterms, but show voters that they're still talking about issues that they really care about. And just like the IRS bill, there's virtually zero chances that this moves on. Um, But it shows that they're not shying away from issues that are important to the base. All right. So taxes, abortion, traditional partisan issues. Uh, Is this what we should expect uh, in Congress or any areas at all where there's bipartisanship, maybe on the horizon? There are. uh, Members of both parties this week voted to establish a new select committee on China, investigating China's growing global influence. Uh, Republican Mike Gallagher of uh, Wisconsin will chair that committee, and he's called on Democrats and Republicans to work together on this issue. All right. That's NPR's Barbara Sprunt. Barbara, thanks. Thank you. Time now for StoryCorps. Ahead of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a story from a civil rights leader who died during the pandemic. The Reverend Harry Blake, who worked alongside Dr. King, came to StoryCorps with his daughter, Monica. He told her about the first time he took a stand over wages in a cotton field in Louisiana. And a note for our listeners, the story contains racist language. I guess I was 11, 12 years old. We were field workers. The adults said, we're going to protest. They sat down at the end of the row where time passed on. And we saw the owner of the plantation was coming toward us. And next thing I knew, 
everybody was back in the field. <laughs> I, I didn't go back. And he scolded me and said, I'm going to tell your daddy about you. He'll straighten you out. I said, well, sir, we said we weren't going to go back until we told you our grievances. So that's why I'm sitting down. Even at 11 years old, you had that boldness. My dad taught me to say what I meant and mean what I say. He knew how to say yes, sir, no, sir, tip his hat. That was his technique for surviving, but he never feared anyone. I remember he side-swiped a white man's car, and the white man came to my daddy's car and started cursing him and told him, I'll kill you so-and-so-and-so. My daddy's words were, well, sir, I can't keep you from killing me, but you won't kill a nigga who's scared. And, of course, the white man backed off. Right, right. Uh Wow. That's not one I had ever heard. Yeah. When I decided to work for Martin King, I went to talk with my parents, particularly my dad, to say to them that my life would be threatened and that I might even lose my life doing this. And not only would my life be jeopardized because I was his son, He might be. And uh, my dad said to me, I would be disappointed if you made a different decision. And I will never forget that. That was the Reverend Harry Blake talking with his daughter, Monica. He spent decades as a pastor and civil rights worker in Shreveport, Louisiana. He survived police beatings, arrests, and even an assassination attempt. He died in 2020 at the age of 85. His StoryCorps conversation is archived at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru, who created the Share the Love event 15 years ago as a way to help those in need. To date, Subaru and its retailers have donated more than $250 million to charity. More at Subaru.com share. And from Dignity Memorial, dedicated to celebrating each life with compassion and attention to detail. They help to plan life celebrations now, so families don't have to later. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBOR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up on Morning Edition, a preview of the Japanese Prime Minister's first official visit to the White House. It's 829. A quick reminder, as you're headed out this morning, you can stay with us no matter where you're going with the WBOR mobile app. It's new and improved. You can even back up to hear things you've missed. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, unpaid bills. More than $50,000 on a private investigator to investigate Maura Healy's romantic life as the attorney general. An airing of it all in public. We dive beneath the headlines on the latest upheaval in the state's Republican Party. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Attorney General Merrick Garland is appointing a special counsel to investigate President Biden's handling of classified documents. It follows the discovery of records at Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware, and at an office in Washington used by Biden after he left the vice presidency. NPR's Tamara Keith says Republicans in Congress are also planning an investigation. Congressional Republicans are making hay of this and saying that they will investigate Biden's mishandling of classified documents. Um, They will be asking who had access to his garage and the other areas where the documents were stored and and why this was kept from the public until after the midterms. Um, You know, they were already planning to investigate President Biden. Uh, Now they've got another scandal that they can stoke. The documents were discovered in early November and December. President Biden says he's cooperating fully with the investigation. President Biden welcomes Japan's prime minister to the White House today. The prime minister was at the Pentagon yesterday, where Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin reaffirmed the U.S. commitment to defend Japan. Including U.S. extended deterrence uh, provided by the full range of conventional and nuclear capabilities. Austin says Washington and Tokyo remain concerned about China's actions in the Taiwan Strait and North Korea's provocations. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor Maura Healey says she'll continue to advocate for strong gun laws in Massachusetts. She says her administration wants to get to the root cause of gun violence in the state. I've talked a long time about my real heavy focus on mental health, um, and I do think we need more mental health providers. We meet more people trained um, on trauma-informed care. And we've just got to do this for our young people and for our families. Healy has not named any specific policies she plans to enforce, but says she plans to work with the Attorney General and Mayor Michelle Wu to combat the issue. The State Gaming Commission is appointing one of its top investigations officials to oversee Massachusetts's new sports betting program. Bruce Band is a longtime gambling regulator and former casino consultant. He'll take on the role of sports wagering division chief. The appointment comes just weeks before in-person sports betting is set to become legal in the state. After decades of planning, the Embrace will be unveiled today on Boston Common. It's a 22-foot-tall monument to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King. WBWAR's Cristela Guerra spoke to the executive director of Embrace Boston just before the big event. When Amari Paris Jeffries looks at the bronze sculpture of Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King wrapped around each other in an embrace, he says he sees family. I hope people feel a sense of belonging when they are there, that they see themselves in the memorial, that those are their arms embracing someone that they love and care about, or that those arms are embracing them. The official unveiling program begins at 1 p.m. The event will be live streamed, and there will also be large screens in place for the public to watch near the Parkman bandstand. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Cristela Guerra. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. 
PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. The Bruins' 19-game home winning streak ended last night. The Seattle Kraken managed to beat the team in a shutout victory. The final score was 3-0. to zero. The Bees will play at home again tomorrow against the Toronto Maple Leafs. The Celtics are coming off a victory. The team outscored the Brooklyn Nets by 11 points last night on the road. The final score was 109-98. to The team is away again tomorrow. They'll play the Charlotte Hornets. In your forecast, rain this morning, then cloudy and windy in the low to mid-50s. Tonight it falls to the mid-30s and stays overcast. Tomorrow mostly cloudy, only in the upper 30s. Chance of snow Sunday morning, then mostly cloudy and in the upper 30s. It's 58 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Dwayne Brown in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. President Biden will welcome Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida to the White House today for his first visit since taking office over a year ago. It comes on the heels of Japan's decision to embark on its biggest military buildup since the end of World War II. As NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports from Tokyo, the summit is likely to look at how that shift will affect the two countries and their decades-old military alliance. In meetings in Washington ahead of the summit, Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin met with their Japanese counterparts. Blinken praised Japan's surge in investment in its military. We applaud Japan's pledge to double defense spending by 2027. While Secretary Austin praised its decision to get long-range missiles. We strongly endorse Japan's decision to acquire a counter-strike capability. Japan's constitution forbids it from waging war. In past, the alliance has been described as the U.S. wielding the spear while Japan holds the shield. But recent events, including Russia's invasion of Ukraine, tensions in the Taiwan Strait, and North Korea's barrage of missile tests have all accelerated Japan's policy shift. Japan has just seriously upgraded their shield. Myrna Gallick is a senior policy analyst focusing on East Asia at the U.S. Institute of Peace in Washington, D.C. So that means that as a whole, the alliance is stronger. The U.S. can use its resources better with Japan. And so they'll be looking at how to do that. Japan is shifting its military resources south in preparation for what it sees as the most likely contingency, an attack by mainland China on Taiwan. Japan has islands close to Taiwan. The U.S. will create a new Marine Corps regiment to help Japan defend them. Here's Defense Secretary Austin again. We're replacing uh, an artillery regiment with an outfit that's more lethal, more agile, more capable. Military bases in Japan are increasingly within reach of North Korean and Chinese missiles. So U.S. and Japanese troops are working on spreading out and presenting a smaller target. Last month, U.S. and Japanese military personnel took part in command post exercises in Japan aimed at improving their ability to work together. We can't operate the way we once did. Lieutenant General Xavier Brunson, commanding general of the U.S. Army's 1st Corps, spoke after the drills. 
the way that our army has operated over the past 20 plus years in Afghanistan and Iraq. We've got to get smaller, and this exercise allowed us to do that. Beneath the official pronouncements, tensions within the alliance remain. Japan's military buildup is in part to show its determination to defend itself and be the kind of nation allies want to support. But it may also be a hedge, says the U.S. Institute of Peace's Myrna Gallick, against a return to a president like Donald Trump, who is openly skeptical of U.S. allies. That might have been percolating under the surface and is still kind of a a fear and a concern that a, a different U.S. president might pull that again. And as Japan's military clout grows, it may demand a greater say in who calls the shots within the alliance. Shigeru Ishiba is a ruling party lawmaker and former defense minister. I believe that having the Japan-U.S. relationship as equal as possible would enhance the sustainability of the alliance. It's taken Japan more than seven decades to gradually loosen some of the post-war restraints on its military. Reaching an equal footing with its current ally and former occupier is likely to be a long haul as well. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Tokyo. Californians have been navigating flooded roads and intersections after weeks of heavy rain. All that concrete isn't prepared for storms that are getting more extreme with climate change. A new law passed by Congress in December could change that. But the big question is, how soon will it make a difference? Lauren Summer from NPR's Climate Desk joins us this morning. Hi, Lauren. Hi there. Of course, we need the rain due to the drought, but why are we seeing so much flooding in California? Because it's not just next to rivers, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, this is flooding that often happens far from rivers. It's inside cities and neighborhoods. And it happens because a lot of rainfalls and the stormwater infrastructure, you know, which is those drains and pipes that go underground, it simply can't handle it. You know, sometimes they get clogged, but other times they're just not designed for that much water. Why aren't they designed to handle these types of storms and water? That's because in most places, the infrastructure is based on really old rainfall records. I spoke to one utility in Kentucky, the Louisville and Jefferson County Metropolitan Sewer District, Mm -hmm. and their stormwater infrastructure is based on rainfall data from 1961. The problem is that storms are getting more intense. The utility did a study that found extreme rainstorms have already gotten worse and with climate change will drop two to three more inches of rain by 2065. Infrastructure planning manager Stephanie Laughlin says they're feeling those effects. Because those climate change storms are happening more frequently, now is the time to invest in updating those systems that were installed 100 years ago. Yeah, Lauren, it makes sense, right? Why don't these utilities switch to more recent rainfall records or design better infrastructure? Yeah, I mean, some big utilities are doing that. But in general, the problem is that they rely on the official rainfall data from the federal government. That's put out by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. In late December, though, President Biden signed a law that requires NOAA to update these records for the entire country and to include climate change forecasts about future storms. And NOAA is already working on that update. Right. Infrastructure, a big focus right now with a bipartisan infrastructure law rolling out, talking billions of dollars being spent. Will that update, do you think, be ready in time for this? Yeah, the the problem is that NOAA won't have that new climate rainfall data until 2026. The vast majority of the infrastructure funding, which is almost $12 billion for these water systems, will be distributed by then. Um, No officials say it will take that long because doing this analysis for the whole country is pretty complex. 
Yeah, so what should cities and states do in the meantime if they're planning some big water projects? Yeah, yeah, that's the key question because what's built today will last 50, 60 years, even longer. I spoke to Rachel Cletus, who works on extreme weather policy at the Union of Concerned Scientists, and, and she said even without this updated rainfall info, cities need to build in some kind of margin of safety to deal with climate change. What we need to do is make sure that we're mainstreaming it into all of our infrastructure decisions from here on out. Otherwise, we'll be putting good money after bad. You know, we will have roads and bridges that might get washed out. We might have power infrastructure that's vulnerable. What needs to happen, she says, is a real shift in how we build things. You know, infrastructure that's around us is based on the idea that the future is just like the past, and that's not true anymore. And many cities are, are struggling to make that shift. That's Lauren Summer from NPR's Climate Desk. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, Cambridge officials last night faced an angry audience with tough questions about the police shooting of a 20-year-old man. WBMR's Deborah Becker was there. In our forecast, showers and high winds this morning, then cloudy this afternoon. Temperatures may rise to the mid-50s, mid-30s tonight under cloudy skies, then a mostly cloudy Saturday that will be much colder, only in the 30s. A little snow possible on Sunday morning, then overcast in the afternoon. It'll be in the upper 30s. Right now, it's 58 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack Repertory Theater with Letters from Home a true story of the intergenerational legacy of a Cambodian family. Starts January 21st, MRT.org. Now, in business news, Boston-based Embark Veterinary is laying off 20% of its workforce. The tech company provides DNA testing for dogs. The Boston Business Journal reports a majority of Embark's layoffs are Massachusetts workers. Electric vehicle drivers now have more places to charge their cars in Hingham. The Hingham Municipal Lighting Plant installed four chargers across the city. They were installed with money from a state grant. The chargers are up and running 24-7. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's current season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Hundreds of people crowded into a Cambridge school auditorium last night for a community meeting. They were there to learn more about the fatal police shooting earlier this month of 20-year-old UMass Boston student Arif Saeed Faisal. As city leaders were questioned about the killing of Faisal for nearly four hours, emotions ran high. WBOR's Deborah Becker was at the meeting and joins us now. Good morning, Deb. Good morning, Rupa. So that sounds like quite a boisterous meeting. Indeed. Um, the crowd interrupted, heckled, chanted several times as Cambridge's mayor, city manager, police chief, and the Middlesex County District Attorney Marion Ryan spoke about the January 4th shooting. 
Basically, the officials said they couldn't go into great detail publicly because there is an ongoing investigation into the shooting and because they haven't discussed the case with Faisal's family. But that didn't sit well with many of those in the crowd. They asked several questions, such as the name of the officer involved and why he's been placed on paid administrative leave. Here's Cambridge resident Imran Baki. The officer who killed this boy is in paid leave, maybe having margarita in Florida. Why aren't you suspending him, firing him? If it is in your power, you can do it, but you decided not to do it. Deb, can you remind us, what do we know so far about how this shooting happened? Well, what police have said is that officers responded to a 911 call on January 4th. The caller had said a man jumped out an apartment window and had a knife and appeared to be harming himself. When police arrived, they said Faisal fled for a few blocks in the Cambridgeport neighborhood for about 10 minutes. Police say he refused to drop the knife. So officers then used what's called a less than lethal sponge round. But they said Faisal still would not drop the weapon, so an officer shot Faisal, and he was later pronounced dead at Massachusetts General Hospital. And how did Cambridge officials respond to the crowd last night? Well, they talked about how tragic all of this has been, and, and they mainly talked about the process and what's what happens when there's a police shooting. Uh, police Commissioner Christine Elo promised to work to restore trust between police and the community. As an African-American woman, I am committed to reform. You know, part of the reason that I became a police officer was because I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to build trust, particularly with communities of color, particularly with the African-American community. And it really is about us coming together, having these difficult conversations, feeling uncomfortable sometimes, and, and doing the hard work. And Commissioner Elo also said the procedure is not to publicly identify an officer involved until after the investigation, which she promised would be transparent, but would likely take several months. And former Cambridge Mayor Ken Reeves, who's now with the NAACP, asked officials to speed up that investigation, and he urged residents to continue to press for information and reforms. We're going to have the Cambridge that we want. That's why I spent the better part of my life trying to live in one place in America where I can walk down the street and not worry that somebody's going to call me the N-word or beat me up or shoot me up or any of those things. And so I'm committed to that, and I want you to be committed to it, too. As I understand it, Middlesex County DA Marion Ryan is going to do the investigation into this incident, and she was there last night. What did she say? She described what happens uh, when there's a police-involved shooting. She said an independent judge will be appointed to hear testimony from witnesses and review the evidence, and that judge will then issue a report. But after the meeting, Ryan very candidly said that improvements are needed in the way police respond to behavioral health crises. One thing that's clear is we, we have a problem when it comes to mental health issues. We don't have a good solution. We've tried, you know, Middlesex County's large. We have lots of communities. We've tried different things. We have co-responder models. We have ride-alongs. We have lots of those models. None of them are perfect. But Rupa, uh, DA Ryan did say that, you know, reforms are continuing. What happens from here? There are several more community meetings scheduled in the coming days, including one about police policies and training next week. 
All right, WBUR's Deborah Becker, thank you for being there last night and for getting up early to be with us this morning. We really appreciate it. Mm. You're welcome. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, why some communities across the U.S. are concerned that they'll be left out of the federal government's big push to expand broadband access. And coming up at noon today, it's here and now, and Peter O'Dowd is on the line to tell us what they're going to be talking about today. Hey there, Peter. Happy Friday. Hey, Rupa. Happy Friday, Friday the 13th. So uh, January 1st, the start of the year, was a tough, tough start of the year in, for farmers in central Arizona because uh, just south of Phoenix, where I am, uh, these farmers, hundreds of them, are no longer getting any access to the Colorado River, not mm-hmm. a single drop. And they, for years, for decades, they'd use the Colorado River uh, to grow their crops. But, you know, it's uh, there's a terrible drought going on. And as cuts start to kick in for the 40 million people in seven states that rely on the river, these farmers in central Arizona had the lowest priority. They're the first to really feel what a future without the Colorado River looks like. Um, spoke to one farmer who said he's going to have to fallow 60% of his acres. Mm. And he said, you know, what's happening to me is coming for everybody. So that uh, is kind of scary for folks who live in the West. I'm glad you're tracking that. Thank you, Peter. Yeah, you're welcome. That's here now. Today at noon, it's 851. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. There's a massive COVID outbreak in China, prompting more screening of incoming air travelers to the U.S. These viruses are smart. They can mutate, and we want to be ahead of the game and early in our detection of variants. How the CDC is expanding efforts to spot dangerous new variants quickly. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today from 4 to 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. A rainy and windy Friday morning today, then a cloudy afternoon. Temperatures will top out in the mid-50s. Right now it's 58 degrees in Boston at 852. A great source on what burning oil would do to the climate turns out to have been Exxon, if only it had chosen to share. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. I'm David Brancaccio. It has been known for years that ExxonMobil chose to sow doubt about climate science, even though it was aware of the human effects on global temperatures. But now a new study in the journal Science finds that for decades, Exxon had remarkably accurate in-house predictions about what the burning of fossil fuel would do to temperatures around the world. Marketplace's Nova Safo is following this. Yeah, the backdrop to this study, David, is that Exxon, along with other oil and gas companies, are facing lawsuits from states which accuse the companies of knowing about climate change but misleading the public about it for decades, you know, akin to the tobacco industry lawsuits in the late 1990s. And in the case of Exxon, There were reports a couple of years ago about its own company scientists confirming climate change as far back as the 1970s. What's new here 
is the extent of that knowledge and how accurate it was, at least according to this published study. It says Exxon scientists were at times even more accurate in their predictions of what was to come than government and academic scientists. And what much of Exxon's internal projections found was that burning fossil fuels would warm the planet by about three-tenths of a degree every decade. And that's almost exactly what's happened. Scientists say since 1981, planet warming has accelerated to 0.32 degrees Fahrenheit per decade. And how has Exxon responded to these latest revelations in that journal? Well, an Exxon spokesperson told the Associated Press that company scientists put out a lot of research over the years. And all of that was part of what the spokesman called well-intended internal policy debates. So they're, you know, pushing back against this idea that Exxon knew all along about climate change and yet was putting out disinformation. And the company's spokesperson also said Exxon is supportive of, quote, effective policy solutions to help deal with the climate crisis that we're facing. And there's word this week, 2022 was one of the hottest years on record. Nine out of 10 of the hottest have been in the last decade. Here, futures are pointing to a downward opening on Wall Street in a bit. S&P futures are down 1% now. Dow futures are down 283 points or eight tenths of a percent. Now, there's regular stock in a company. Then there's a special stock that comes with additional rights for investors. Chinese authorities are moving to take what are referred to as golden shares in local parts of some of its biggest tech firms, including e-commerce giant Alibaba and Tencent, the world's biggest video game seller. Golden shares give the holder more power to influence company decisions, meaning in this case, the Chinese government will have that power. The BBC's Will Bain has more. What the Chinese government appears to be doing is ostensibly buying a golden share in some of its biggest and most successful technology firms. Whilst not explicitly one, it's 1% stakes in various arms of firms like the shopping and pay giant Alibaba, Tencent and TikTok's owner ByteDance would come with a government seat on the company's boards. And according to reports, likely a sign-off on things like what content gets censored on the platform and what doesn't. For Duncan Clark, chairman of the consultants BDA China and longtime watcher of Chinese tech, the message is clear. What it is doing, I think, is making explicit what was already implicit by having a equivalent of a golden share, having some more management rights and a seat. It's making it explicit that government has the ultimate say. How regulators around the world take that message is the next big question. I'm the BBC's Will Bain for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by the United States Postal Service, offering postage stamps for purchase at more than 40,000 supermarkets, drugstores, office suppliers, and wholesale clubs. And by JLL, a commercial real estate leader using data and technology to solve today's complex real estate challenges. Learn more at JLL.com. JLL, see a brighter way. Last year's trillion-dollar infrastructure bill, among other things, earmarks an unprecedented pile of cash to get fast Internet to people. In some parts of some cities and in rural areas, service remains pokey. Now there's criticism that the Federal Communications Commission's planning maps for broadband are flawed, and some communities are finding there wasn't enough time to challenge these. Texas Public Radio's Paul Flav reports. Last month, Kimball Sikapkotiwa testified at a hearing on Internet access. She's a member of the Hopi tribe who lives in Pueblo Cochiti, 45 minutes south of Santa Fe. And she said new FCC broadband maps are flawed, especially for tribal lands. In my rural community, the map currently shows three residences when it should show 275. The map has other gaps, too. The state of New York reported at least 31,000 state residences were missing. 
These maps will be used to divvy up $42.5 billion to expand broadband access where it's needed most. Internet access advocates complained for years that the old broadband maps were incomplete. The new maps are an improvement, but problems still drew the attention of two dozen senators who asked the FCC for more accuracy. And any challenges to the maps have to be submitted by this week. Communities have been scrambling to meet the deadline within a two-month window that included three holidays and one of the biggest winter storms on record. Dustin Loop is a program manager at the National Broadband Mapping Coalition. It's just so detached from the reality that people live. In New Mexico, the rugged mountainous terrain makes broadband expansion expensive and out of reach for many areas. Kelly Schlegel runs the state office responsible for challenging the map, and she says there's a lot on the line if communities are not represented correctly. And it uh, could possibly leave uh, hundreds of millions of dollars on the table instead of flowing to New Mexico, which really keeps me up at night. A number of local governments in at least 19 states have asked for more time, but the federal government hasn't paused the process. A spokesperson for the National Telecommunications and Information Administration says in order to get the funding out in June, the agency must adhere to the deadline. But communities can still file challenges after that point, and they may be included. I'm Paul Flav for Marketplace. So you clock in at work at 8.53, yet corporate rounds you up to the next 15-minute increment, meaning you get paid as if you came in at 9 o'clock instead. Well, Home Depot has now agreed to pay employees using one-minute increments instead of the quarter-hour thing after some lawsuits. The publication Insider quotes Home Depot saying that while the 15-minute rounding was an industry-wide practice, it'll start with the minutes this coming Monday. Just don't be late. Under the old system, someone coming in at 9.07 could have gotten paid for 9 a.m., right? I'm David Brancaccio. You're listening to the Marketplace Morning Report, where our digital producer is Jarrett Dang, our engineers are Jess and Dooler and Nick Esposito. I'm David Brancaccio. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. We'll have rain and wind this morning, clouds this afternoon. It'll be warm in the mid-50s. Tonight it falls to the mid-30s, and it stays in the 30s through the weekend. Saturday will be cloudy with a chance of rain in the late afternoon. Sunday, we may see some snow showers. Right now, it's 57 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. Gun owners' liability insurance. Some cities now require it. Will it make neighborhoods safer? Insurance in and of itself is never going to cover the kinds of violent events that people imagine it would because insurance can't cover things that you do on purpose. But then again, most drivers don't intentionally crash their cars, but auto insurance is required anyway. What's different about guns? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.